Welcome to NTD Evening News, our top story tonight, a damning federal report on one of America's deadliest school shootings. It details failures in the police response to the 2022 Uvalde school shooting that killed 21. How President Biden and families of victims are reacting. Iris Tao at the White House. Congress fast-tracked a temporary extension on government funding this evening. The extension, receiving bipartisan support in both chambers, left conservatives in the House fuming with disappointment. Melina Weiskup on Capitol Hill. Lawmakers in D.C. are moving closer to impeaching Homeland Security's Alejandro Mayorkas. Meanwhile, down at the border, tensions between Texas and the federal government keep rising. Arian Pazdar has an immigration update. Recent polling shows an increase in the number of Republicans who believe former President Trump can beat President Biden. Meanwhile, Biden is hoping for a border deal that could boost his popularity. And in Georgia, a judge gave D.A. Fannie Willis until February 2nd to respond to allegations of an improper relationship. Arlene Richards has the updates. Pakistan retaliates against Iran by firing missiles of its own. Hear what the Biden administration has to say about the situation in the Middle East. This is NTD Evening News. Live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City, here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. A failure that should not have happened. That's what the Justice Department is saying about the police response to the 2022 Uvalde school shooting, which killed 19 children and two teachers. The White House today calling for more gun control. NTD's Iris Tao brings us this report. In a nearly 600-page report released on Thursday, the Justice Department concludes that critical failures in both in tactics and leadership were to blame for why police officers waited for over an hour before confronting a gunman at an elementary school in Valdi who ended up killing 21 people there. Attorney General Merrick Garland saying this in Uvalde after meeting with the families of the victims. Failures in leadership, in tactics, in communications, in training and in preparedness were made by law enforcement lawyers and others. I also told the families and survivors how deeply sorry I am for the losses they suffered that day and for the losses they have suffered every day since. The single most critical tactical failure, the report says, was a decision made by local police officers to classify the incident as a barricaded standoff as opposed to an active shooter scenario, which would have made them actually go straight in and take down the shooter immediately. Another critical failure was a lack of a clear leadership. According to a report, some police officers were actually confused about who was really in charge on the scene. The families of some of the victims saying this, and you've all after getting briefed on the report. Watch. I guess the next step is to find out what will be done with this information. Hopefully that this will bring some changes and some accountability that we have been fighting and asking for since the very beginning. Meanwhile, President Biden again calling for stricter gun control. He wrote in the Thursday statement that, quote, we must ban assault weapons and high capacity magazines. The families of Evaldi deserve nothing less. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. 
With the snowstorm headed to Washington, D.C. this evening, lawmakers rushed their last order of business, that is, avoiding a government shutdown. It's the third time this fiscal year Congress has kicked the can down the road on funding, and House conservatives are fuming. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details. Both the House and Senate raced to pass a temporary extension to government funding, but it didn't slide by with no opposition. There were 18 Republicans in the Senate who opposed it, as well as more than 100 Republicans in the House who opposed it. And there were more Democrats, as a matter of fact, who voted to pass this than Republicans, which just shows the level of frustration that Republicans have over this spending issue. To speak to the point of why there is opposition over this particular bill, while there are those who are always opposed to continuing resolutions because they just see them as an extension or delay of Congress's inability to budget. You have other Republicans now who are trying to push the message that they do not want to fund the Department of Homeland Security without first seeing border policy change. Then you have the concern over just the sheer level of government spending. Congressman Chip Roy, who's a member of the Freedom Caucus himself, took to the House floor today to remind lawmakers what actually they're funding with this temporary extension. Here's what he had to say, along with how his speaker, Mike Johnson, has tried to fend off some of this criticism. We will fund a weaponized Department of Justice and FBI going after parents like Scott Smith and Mark Houck. I've got more, because that's what we're doing. We are voting to fund a federal bureaucracy that has war with the American people while we indebt our, gen our children for generations. And this is an important thing for us because it allows us to fight for our policy changes, our policy writers in those spending bills. And it takes time to do that. And so the reason we need just a little bit more time on the calendar is to allow that process to play out. The question is, will they actually be able to reach that goal with this three-week extension that they're giving themselves? The Senate has only passed three of its 12 appropriations bills, and the House has passed seven of its 12. There are still five more for the House to consider, and that's been a challenge for this Republican-led House because of inter-party disagreement over certain policies and priorities. So the question now is, will this third continuing resolution during this fiscal year be the last one? Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Texas is not giving back control of Shelby Park and Eagle Pass, even after a stern warning and a deadline by Homeland Security. Meanwhile, lawmakers in D.C. are moving closer to impeaching Homeland Security's Alejandro Mayorkas. NTD's Arian Pazdar has a border update. Tensions keep rising at the border in Eagle Pass, Texas. Homeland Security had given Texas a Thursday deadline to evacuate Shelby Park. However, it seems like Texas is defying the order. Fox News published this footage on Thursday afternoon, saying Texas National Guard is installing even more razor wire and fencing instead of evacuating. Texas also reportedly started arresting illegal immigrants, as you can see here. And it's not clear how the federal government will respond to that. Last week, Homeland Security sent a letter saying if Texas doesn't hand the park back, the agency will consider all other options available to restore Border Patrol's access to the border. Meanwhile in D.C., the House Homeland Security Committee holding the second impeachment hearing for Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This is not a policy difference. The truth is Secretary Mayorkas has disregarded court orders. The mother of a young woman who was allegedly killed by an MS-13 gang member testified at the hearing. Had DHS employee employees performed a visual inspection of the assailant's body, they would have seen MS-13 gang-related tattoos on his body. 
House Republicans are now reportedly planning to mark up an impeachment resolution on January 31st. That's according to multiple news outlets. However, Chairman Mark Green reportedly said he's neither confirming nor denying the date. Also on Thursday, both Democratic senators of Colorado said Congress should support communities receiving immigrants. There's a reason why the Constitution of the United States assigns this responsibility, that is the responsibility of immigration, not to one city or not to one state. They want Congress to give work authorization to immigrants in the U.S., allocate more federal funding to communities receiving immigrants and more. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Republicans continue to favor former President Trump over Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley in a new poll. Meanwhile, Trump is pushing his strong stance on immigration by urging Congress not to compromise on a border deal. Plus, the latest update on a requested probe into Georgia prosecutor Fannie Willis. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. According to data shared Thursday by ABC News, most Republicans are satisfied with former President Trump as the nominee, rather than Governor DeSantis or Nikki Haley. The ABC News Ipsos poll conducted January 16th and 17th found that 75% of Republicans choose Trump, with 64% choosing DeSantis and 50% choosing Haley. And similar to other polls, 73% of the adults polled said Trump was the strongest leader compared to the other two. These Republicans and GOP leaners see Trump as the candidate who best represents their personal values and understands the problems of people like them. But it's notable that Trump's favorability increased in one area. Since a similar poll conducted before the Iowa caucuses, 12% more Americans believe Trump has the best chance of getting elected in November. With ratings like these, Trump feels like he's already won. He's been aggressively touting his border policies at campaign rallies. Right now, we have millions of people streaming into our country. It's an invasion. Remain in Mexico. You think that was easy to get? I got it. Trump said on Truth Social that he didn't think Congress should do a border deal at all unless we get everything needed to shut down the invasion. President Biden faces high disapproval on the border issue. Striking a deal could help Biden politically. Meanwhile, Trump's been having meetings about the deal. President Trump is not wrong. He and I have been talking about this um, uh, pretty frequently. I talked to him the uh, night before last about the same subject. On the other hand, Trump is battling with a number of legal woes as he climbs back to the White House. In a positive turn, a Georgia judge has ordered a hearing into allegations that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis and the lead prosecutor were involved in an improper relationship. Trump co-defendant Mike Roman made the allegations in a court filing on January 8th. He said Wade has been benefiting financially in legal fees and that he's been using taxpayer funding to take Willis on lavish vacations. Judge Scott McAfee has given Willis until February 2nd to respond. Meanwhile, Republican Governor Brian Kemp doesn't want to get involved. In response to Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's request that he open an investigation, Kemp said it's not his job. He referred her to the state's oversight committee. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And the first in the nation primary in New Hampshire is coming up next week. Make sure you don't miss our special coverage. Join NTD's Steve Lance and myself for another exciting election night on The Nation Decides 2024. Exclusive on-the-ground access and special guests. Watch the action live on Tuesday, January 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. 
An update on the House impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Hunter Biden has agreed to give a closed-door deposition in Congress. He will appear before lawmakers from the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees. The GOP committee chairmen say they look forward to Hunter Biden's testimony. The committees are also planning to schedule President Biden's brother, James Biden, to provide testimony. The president's son initially resisted giving closed-door testimony and said he would only testify publicly. House Republicans began contempt proceedings against him after he failed to comply with a subpoena. More and more countries getting entangled in the fallout of the Israel-Hamas war. Pakistan retaliated against Iran with missiles landing within Iranian borders. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest war updates. The United States gave very strong warnings early on about the possible spread of the war between Israel and the Iran-backed terrorist group Hamas. President Biden said this soon after the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th. To any country, any organization, anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation, I have one word, don't. And on Thursday, State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller reiterated this point. We've been incredibly concerned about uh, the potential for escalation since October 7th, and that's why we have engaged in intense diplomatic efforts to try to prevent escalation. However, it appears more and more countries are getting involved in one way or another. This week, Iran launched strikes in Syria, claiming they were targeting the Islamic State terrorist group. Iran also launched an attack in northern Iraq at what Iran claims was an Israeli intelligence building. And more shockingly, on Wednesday, Iran launched missiles into nuclear-armed Pakistan. Well, on Thursday, Pakistan didn't waste much time and responded by firing missiles and attack drones into Iran at what it says were Baloch separatists, which Pakistan considers a terrorist group. Iran's interior minister said two men, three women and four children were killed in a village a few miles from Iran's border. Pakistani residents shared their thoughts after Pakistan's attack in Iran. If Iran attacked first and our army retaliated to the Iranian strikes today, I stand with our army. The whole country stands with them. They should both try to find a mutual solution to the problem through negotiations. It is better to reach a solution and try to avoid further hostility. On Thursday, President Biden was asked about the Iran-Pakistan situation. As you can see, Iran is not particularly well liked in the region. Yeah. And uh, where, where that goes, we're working on now. I don't know where that goes. Meanwhile, on Thursday, India sent its Navy to rescue a crew on board a U.S.-owned ship that was attacked by the Iran-backed Houthi terrorist group off the coast of Yemen. And the fighting continues in the Gaza Strip. On Thursday, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Israeli forces have now destroyed about two-thirds of Hamas's regiments. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, two California teachers are now allowed to return to their classrooms. They sued their school district over gender identity policies. Find out how it went down. The WHO makes a surprise announcement on gender transition services for minors. Here, our guest explain why it's significant. That and more after the break here on NTD News.
Welcome back. Two California teachers are now allowed to return to the classroom after a lawsuit. Last year, they sued their school district for requiring them to use their students' preferred gender pronouns without their parents' knowledge. And today's Eileen Eng has more. A federal judge on January 10th ordered that two teachers from the Escondido Unified School District be allowed to return to school after pushing back against gender identity policies. Uh, judge Benitez ordered the school district to immediately reinstate our clients and we're pleased with the order. It's exactly what we wanted him to do. Um, we also wanted him to hold them in contempt, which he declined to do, which is not surprising. The Christian and Catholic teachers, Elizabeth Mirabelli and Lori Ann West, were placed on administrative leave last May after suing the school district and the California Board of Education at the end of April. The district required that teachers deliberately hide a student's preferred pronoun that's different from their biological sex from parents. Teachers must also treat the students with their identified gender identity. Otherwise, it would be considered discrimination and harassment. And I think a lot of people actually were very shocked to find out this policy even existed because the school adopted the policy in secret during the pandemic. No one really voted on it. No one knew about it. In fact, Teachers specifically asked, are you going to tell parents about this? And they said no. Mirabelli and West alleged that the district violated their First Amendment rights by requiring them to accept the policy. They felt it was wrong to lie to the student's parents. The judge agreed, and, and he basically said this policy constitutes a trifecta of harms. It harms not only our teachers because it violates and infringes on their religious beliefs, but it also harms parents and it harms children. West has returned to teaching, and Maribelli will soon too. NTD reached out to the Escondido Unified School District for a comment, but did not hear back by airtime. The WHO chiming in on the issue of gender transition services for minors. The organization recently announced that it's not making any recommendations on such services. They said that's because evidence on the long-term outcomes are limited and variable. Joining us now to react to the news, we have Colin Wright. He's an evolutionary biologist and fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Colin Wright, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, the WHO this week has chosen not to make any recommendations on, quote, gender-affirming care for children and teens due to lack of evidence. Now, what is your reaction to this? This is actually a huge announcement made by them because they tried to implement uh, this sort of this panel to review sort of the gender policies for gender affirming care for adults and we thought children originally. Uh, they've since clarified that they're not or they've been pressured uh, based on, you know, people uh, speaking out against this, uh, that they will actually not be making any any policy guidelines related to children. And it's huge that they cited the lack of sort of long term outcome data for children and adolescents, because this is something that a lot of us have been pointing out for so many years, uh, which is why we're upset with org organizations in the US like WPATH or the APA or the AAP, uh, who are essentially ignoring the preponderance of the evidence for this and have just sort of taken the activists, uh, I guess, talking points that the science has been settled on here. This is life-saving care. We need to give kids puberty blockers, surgeries, et cetera. Now, to your point, the U.S. and Canada are among the nations globally who are giving irreversible medical interventions to children with gender dysphoria. Now, is North America an outlier? 
It's a major outlier. Yeah, especially Canada. They tend to be more extreme than any of the other countries. Uh, the U.S. is extreme. Well, I would say half of the United States is extreme on this, just sort of how we are with many other policies because we're so politically divided. Uh, and there's sort of this unique situation in the U.S. too, where our courts actually play a much larger role in litigating medical policies than in other countries do, which have, uh, you know, universal health care programs where they have a more top-down uh, uh, evidence base for things. So in places like the UK and Denmark and Sweden, they've actually put the resources together to do uh, what are called these systematic reviews of the evidence. Now, this is the highest type of study that can be done that gathers all of the evidence and ranks all the evidence quality for each of these studies uh, based on uh, you know how the studies were performed and the outcomes, how long the studies went on for. Uh, and so far, these countries who have done these systematic reviews, which is, again, the highest uh, type of evidence you can possibly have regarding a question, uh, especially a medical question, they've all found that the evidence for the benefits of gender-affirming care, as they call it for youth, is severely low, is extremely low quality, um, mainly because of there not being any long-term outcome studies. You know, they might get people's opinions three months after the fact. So we're trying to get the U.S. to do these sort of systematic reviews. But every time that we try to do this, this usually tries to get shut down by, uh, by organizations that are uh, supposed to be the ones that are, uh, you know, performing these robust studies. And you mentioned earlier how a lot of this is because it's very politically divided in the states. Why do you think it is so politicized in the U.S.? You know, I think there's been sort of a history of, you know, the LGBT rights movement. We've seen a lot of success in, you know, bringing about uh, gay marriage in the United States. And many people on both the right and left thought that was a righteous cause and uh, really see that LGB sort of gay rights movement as being on the right side of history. Uh, but once gay marriage was passed, really these organizations like the ACLU, the Human Rights Campaign, all these major sort of gay rights organizations, they really had to pivot because they achieved what they had been getting billions of dollars to achieve. Uh, and so really you can see that the pivot was into transgender issues, trans medicine, and there's just so many people who don't want to be on the opposite side of sort of this, this rainbow alliance of the LGBT community, because in the past, uh, it didn't work out so well. There were some righteous causes that a lot of people were behind. Uh, and a lot of people just haven't really received the memo. They haven't gotten updated on the fact that, you know, just because they might have been right or, you know, uh, on, on some issues doesn't mean that they're always going to be right on everything moving forward. And really a lot of activists have taken the mantle uh, of these organizations now. Now, in terms of the individuals who have gone through with this or who are going through with this, how will their lives be affected? What happens if they want to transition back? So, I mean, it depends on how much they've gone through with their transition. If there was, if it was merely a social transition where they're just changing their, uh, their legal name, changing their pronouns, the way they dress, the way that people are addressing them, um, you know, this can have some psychological effects and make you less likely to be able to detransition, it sort of keeps you on this conveyor belt towards the more invasive things like hormones and surgeries. But, you know, there is coming back off of a social transition. Um, for someone taking hormones, these are often irreversible, especially if you're a female taking testosterone, your voice is going to deepen, you're going to grow facial hair. These things aren't reversible. 
Um, for males, they will develop breasts if they take estrogen or estradiol. Uh, some of these are slightly reversible. The voice changes aren't going to be uh, very dramatic at all. Um, but really, uh, and especially if you have surgeries, you know, much of these things cannot be reversed, such as, you know, a vaginoplasty or a phalloplasty. There's no coming back from these things. So it's important that we make sure that we're, we're giving people proper evaluations before they're going into this, and especially for children, because, you know, a lot of these kids have no idea what are the, the lifelong implications of these things, including lifelong sterility. Wow. Colin Wright, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, how serious are concerns that conflicts in the Middle East are spreading? Our guest offers an assessment of the situation in the region. And personalized bioweapons? Lawmakers want to stop China from creating pathogens that could target specific people. We explore the race to stay ahead of China in the field of emerging technologies when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some today's top headlines. The Justice Department released its report on the Uvalde school shooting of May 2022. They concluded that the police response was a failure and lives would have been saved had officers followed proper steps. Congress voted to avoid a shutdown and extend government funding until early March. It was the third government funding extension this fiscal year. Some conservative House members were unhappy about it. The House Homeland Security Committee held the second and final impeachment hearing on Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. This came as the Texas National Guard ignored an order from the Department of Homeland Security to hand over control of Shelby Park in Eagle Pass, Texas. A new poll by ABC News found that the vast majority of Republican voters are satisfied with former President Trump being the nominee over Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Meanwhile, Trump urged GOP leaders in Congress not to compromise on a border deal. Pakistan launched retaliatory airstrikes against what they called terrorist hideouts in Iran. Iran said at least nine people were killed in a region near the border with Pakistan. Conditions continue to worsen in the Middle East. Now Iran and Pakistan have traded missile attacks against each other. How serious is the possibility of the conflicts spreading? Joining us now is retired Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb, an international military strategist. Darren Gobb, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Definitely, it's always great to join you. Thank you. Well, we're seeing on top of the Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, the Israel-Hamas war, we're also seeing Iran and Pakistan striking each other's territory. Now, these two have been, there has been a longstanding border tension between the two, but why do you think it's escalated to what we're seeing now? Yeah, that's uh, that's one of those things that just like people from America are looking at this going, does this have anything to do with us? And if it does, you know, what did we do wrong? Well, first of all, like you said, Iran and Pakistan, and by the way, if you mix in the border regions of Afghanistan, and I've flown and worked that entire border between Pakistan and Afghanistan and, and all the way down there towards near Iran. So I'm very familiar with the area. And there are longstanding feuds between small groups, you know, terror cells, whatever you want to call them, and political entities that have uh, often been magnified into attacks on formal militaries in both in both countries. So uh, some of this is because Iran has the money now, thanks to our lifting the sanctions. 
and and some of it's due to long-standing feuds that uh, you know Iran is kind of I guess spreading its wings a little bit uh, to other neighbors and this conflict that started really with Hamas and Israel on October 7th is expanding beyond just uh, that area. On that note, this also comes after Iran recently striked, uh, launched strikes against northern Iraq and Syria, and ISIS-K claimed responsibility for an attack in Tehran. Now, there is a growing international concern that the conflicts in the Middle East are spreading. How serious of a concern is that? Uh, it's very serious, and uh, everything seems to be incrementally growing. And, when, and if you're a student of history, you look at a lot of these conflicts and you think they just, like, where one day they weren't going on and the next day they were, and it was a big global conflict, uh, a global fire, I guess you could say. Um, but in reality, most of those actually started in small ways and grew over time as well. So that's the concern here is that this just continues to grow in small increments. And then when you add in Pakistan being a nuclear power next to India, and, and what could possibly happen as these things expand, um, they should be greatly concerned. But Every single thing like this has the potential to keep expanding this conflict through Asia in the Middle East and who knows where it'll go. So they're right to be worried. Now, on that note, the U.S. and U.K. have launched strikes against the Houthis in Yemen with President Biden saying that Iran has gotten the message. However, the Houthis have not backed down. They are Iran-backed and they're continuing to launch attacks. What does the U.S. need to do so that Iran does get the quote-unquote message? Well, first of all, I'd tell you that the message Iran heard was when Kabul fell in August of 2021. That's the message they heard. Nothing else we've done since then has really mattered as far as trying to deter Iran from being a regional terror actor. Uh, what do we need to do now? I would say step number one is put the most harsh sanctions you possibly can on Tehran and send that big message. We don't need to be trying to increase the level of conflict in the Middle East by dropping bombs on Iran or anybody else of that nature. Um, but since Tehran funds everything and trains everybody and arms them, start there. Send that message. See how it's responded to. But always give Americans forces in the Middle East the right, full right to defend themselves, the tools to do so, and provide them a strategy that has any meaning whatsoever. Because right now, they don't have a strategy. They're just sitting there waiting to be shot at. And that's no way to uh, take care of American forces and use them. On that note, in the bigger picture, how do these conflicts in the Middle East connect to each other? Well, a lot of this is, is actually a... Uh, a religious conflict that's that's wrapped up in a national sovereignty conflict too. So when you're starting to deal with Iran, you're dealing with the Shia Islamic sect. Uh, Saudi Arabia, you're dealing with the Sunnis along with the Baathists and Sunnis in, uh, in Syria and part of Iraq. And so some of this is a long-term religious conflict, um, kind of made worse by fighting over borders and resources. You know, Iran and um, Afghanistan and Pakistan have water rights access conflicts that are ongoing and these kinds of things. So as you started with Hamas and Israel in the Middle East, uh, everybody there is seeing that you know, America as a player is not really truly engaged in a meaningful way. Uh, Russia and China are perfectly happy to help create the noise in the Middle East to draw us in potentially and distract us from something else. So to me, this is all just downstream 
of the single message that was sent from Kabul in August of 2021 that America is not going to do what we need to do and provide a strategy or provide an exit plan where we're not needed. Because frankly, uh, some of this stuff we don't need to be involved in, uh, but we seem to want to be and have no reason to be there. Quite concerning indeed. Darren Gaum, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. American lawmakers want to stay ahead of China in the field of emerging technologies, like preventing them from creating personalized bioweapons that could target specific people. Entity's Virginia Gibson has more. In the great U.S.-China tech war, American lawmakers try to figure out how to outpace China in emerging technologies. One step, to have them steal less American technology. China has built its economy on stealing American and allied intellectual property. Millions and billions of dollars in total of American research and development dollars walk out the back door to China every year. China expert Jamil Jaffer says this intellectual property in research is critical in the U.S.-China conflict. He says lawmakers must take significant action so China's theft doesn't give them an advantage in emerging technologies. I introduced a bill to prohibit U.S. taxpayer dollars from going to companies like BGI. They would use this funding to gain access to the U.S. market and importantly gain access to American citizens' DNA. BGI is a Chinese biotechnology company that reportedly owns the largest collection of genetic data in the world. It's been involved in many controversies, such as collaborating with the Chinese Communist Party and assisting with human rights abuses in Xinjiang. Senator Bill Haggerty worries what will happen if BGI has access to American DNA data. When you couple it with advanced AI models. There are a number of maybe doomsday scenarios that experts would point to. Um, personalized bioweapons, for example, that could be designed. We already know that the PRC has an ethnic mission to remake its population in favor of its Han Chinese population and committing massive human rights abuses on its ethnic Muslim populations like the Uyghurs. DNA surveillance can put that on steroids. Emerging technologies expert Lindsay Gorman says it's important to raise awareness about DNA data and its potential weaponization. Personalized bioweapons are a theoretical technology to develop a pathogen that can target specific people. It would theoretically be able to spread throughout an entire population and hurt no one except the specific targets. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. Chinese scientists are testing a new virus strain related to the one that causes COVID-19. How deadly is it? So far, all the mice that have been infected died in just eight days, though it remains unclear how this experimental strain would affect humans. The virus attacked their brains, which were engineered to mimic human genetic makeup. The strain GXP2V infected the lungs, bones, eyes, tracheas, and brains of the mice. They quickly lost weight and were eventually killed by the brain infection. Their eyes turned completely white before they died. Authors of the study work for a university in Beijing. They underscored the risk researching this virus poses toward infecting humans. Researchers say GXP2V virus similar to a strain of virus that causes COVID-19. A former professor of medicine at Stanford posted the research on X, writing this madness must be stopped before it's too late. 
The CCP virus, which causes COVID-19, hit China in 2020. It later spread around the world, taking over one million lives on U.S. soil. Now, the world is still in the dark about where the virus came from. Debates remain over whether it came from an animal or a lab leak. And new information is out on Beijing's pandemic cover-up. When Chinese officials said the virus outbreak in Wuhan was an unknown pneumonia, information about the virus was already available in China. This is according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. A Chinese researcher uploaded an almost complete sequence of the virus's structure to a U.S.-run database in December 2019. Virus sequencing is key to deciphering a strain. Beijing only shared that information with the World Health Organization two weeks later. This two-week window could have helped the world better respond to the pandemic. Coming up, a founding member of the Commodores is saying Shen Yun deserves a Grammy. Find out why this Grammy winner himself has such high praise for the classical Chinese dance group. And in college football, a rare set of circumstances has resulted in one player getting his ninth year of eligibility approved by the NCAA. Dave Martin joins us to explain when we come back. Welcome back. During Shenyun Performing Arts 10 performances in Atlanta, Georgia over the weekend, a Grammy Award-winning member of the Commodores saw the performance and called it mesmerizing. Take a look. First of all, it, it was absolutely great, right? Um, I would say it deserves a Grammy. Shenyun performed for Atlanta audiences, upholding its mission to restore 5,000 years of Chinese civilization and culture. Combining classical Chinese dance, music, costume, and visuals to bring stories to life. It was really uh, written well. You know, it all meshed together. Um, and there were always moments of ups and downs. And, you know, the way it made you feel going through the whole thing was the way that I think that it should have been. I, I was really mesmerized by it. I loved it. I would love to, to have met the conductor and also the, the writer. According to Shen Yun's website, in classical Chinese dance, the inner feelings drive the body to achieve the full expression of the movements. Whoever wrote the music, whoever did the dancing, uh, uh, um, the choreography, it was seamless. It was very special the way they did it. And of course the dancers are just incredible. I feel inspired, I feel lifted and fed. My whole spirit, my whole body has just been, just really is in a state of, of happiness. You think of perfection as mechanical, but the movement on the stage, everything was extremely graceful and it communicated the heart of the religion and the spiritual beliefs uh, of, of the theme of the show. Along with classical Chinese dance, Xinyun features musical performances. The Erhu is a two-stringed musical instrument with an over 4,000-year history and can present a wide range of emotions through its sound. It was absolutely incredible that you could have so much emotion and sound and vibrancy in a two-stringed instrument. It really, really communicated a deep-felt emotion that I think what the, the whole cast and everyone in their performance, everyone gave that. It was really a spiritual journey. 
Shin Yoon will be touring Georgia until February 17th. You got to see it. The, the elegance and the, and the strength and all of the dances and the performances were, yes, I would recommend it highly. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Now, Dave, the Dallas Cowboys have announced they will not be firing head coach Mike McCarthy despite another early playoff exit. What's been the reaction to this? You know, I think it's mixed. It wasn't just that they lost. They got blown out at home in a game that was essentially over by halftime. Uh, you know, that said, though, you know, I'm sorry, even for fans who've seen Dallas under, underperform in the playoffs, uh, this was pretty poor. That said, they've won at least 12 games, three straight seasons. They've got two division titles and there are three straight playoff appearances. So he's had some success. And McCarthy, he previously won a Super Bowl in Green Bay uh, when he had Aaron Rodgers. So he's done it before for sure. I think they also take some extra heat because this is America's team. You know, they have the popularity of the New York Yankees. You either love them or you hate them. And so any losses are really put under the microscope. I think McCarthy has had too much regular season success, though, to be judged on this game. Well, now shifting gears to sports media, Amazon will now partner with Diamond Sports. This is a regional sports network that recently declared bankruptcy. This was a surprise announcement. Does this mean there'll be baseball games streamed on Amazon? Yeah, it's actually a very confusing deal. Basically, Diamond Sports needed investors. They found one in Amazon who will now gain the rights to at least five baseball teams. That's Kansas City, Tampa Bay, Detroit, Miami, and Milwaukee. Now, Diamond Sports, they are a regional sports network. They have a right, they have rights to 37 teams between baseball, basketball, and hockey. Now, this is different from the NFL, where all the games are national broadcast instead of regional. In any case, the significance of this $115 million deal is that it prevents a total collapse of the company, in which case the individual team or even league could then take over production and open up bidding for a new vendor, I'm, something I'm sure they'd much rather do. Even more significant, the biggest available vendor was, to be, was gonna be Amazon themselves. So essentially, Diamond Sports just eliminated what would have been you know, a major bidder, or some might say even a competitor for these TV rights, had they gone under. So it gives them not only an influx of cash, but significantly, significant bargaining leverage, I would even say. This is probably gonna be an ongoing story because it has not been approved by the bankruptcy court yet. Hmm. And now switching gears to football news, Miami tight end Cam McCormick announced he's coming back for his ninth season next year. How is this even possible? <laughs> That was my first question when I saw that headline. He was a freshman all the way back in 2016 with Oregon. That's the same class that has LA Chargers quarterback Justin Herbert, who's already played four years in the NFL. Anyway, he registered that first year, so that one doesn't count. He then played 13 games as a registered freshman the following year, only to miss most of the next three seasons with injuries, got medical registers for all three of them. Plus 2020, everyone got an extra year, extra year of eligibility because of the shortened COVID season. 2021, he was injured again. Finally, the, the last two years he's been able to play, one with Oregon, then he transferred to Miami. This, I would think, would finally be his last season. He will be 26 next year. Wow, now over in Melbourne at the Australian Open, plenty happened there earlier today, including a record-long 42-point tiebreaker on the women's side. Now, how exactly do these tiebreakers work? Yeah, to win a set is the first to six games, of course, but you have to win by two. 
So if you're tied at six, they do a tiebreaker game, essentially. That's supposed to be like a game with players switching serves every two points to make it as fair as possible. Now, at some of the Grand Slams, they don't do tiebreakers for the final set. Someone just has to win by two. In any case, that wasn't, that wasn't the case today. To win the tiebreaker game, it's the first to seven points. But you have to win by two there as well. So it can go past seven, though it doesn't usually go much beyond that. The one today, Anna Blinkova won 22 to 20, and this was the final set. So every time you fell down by a point, you were facing elimination. Every time you went up a point, you had match point on your hands. So it is high stress points, like one after the other. Lasted for 32 minutes. I'm sure the crowd enjoyed it. It was quite a win for Blinkova, though, uh, yet this morning, I, would, I should say. Sounds like quite an interesting time. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.